Look out. Surging up from the depths of the sea. Horrifying, mysterious creatures whose attack on people sends the whole countryside on an endless search. Unless something is done and done quickly. Is this the end of our civilization? You'll pioneer with us the perilous descent into the unknown. What does that mean? What are you even talking about? A deep, penetrating dive. In the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. Humanoids from the deep dive. Welcome to the podcast Humanoids from the Deep Dive, where we dig deep into the meanings and context of your favorite monsters and monster movies. Each episode will see guests and myself give our take on an important movie monster and or film, and what we think it means using everything from history and philosophy to films and folklore. Today's episode will be covering an iconic adaptation of one of my favorite entities, Uh, Robert Kurtzman's 1997 classic Wishmaster from a script by Peter Atkins, and it's Jin. Fans of the show can find us on Spotify, Google iTunes, and Podbean. Also follow us on Twitter at HFTDeepDive. I'm your host, Jeff Ewing. I'm an entertainment contributor for Forbes on genre films with bylines and Nightmare on Film Street and Shudders the Bite, and I've co-edited books on monster media, including Alien Philosophy and Stranger Things in Philosophy, in addition to authoring chapters on topics like Hell, the Devil, Frankenstein, Jurassic Park, and others. I'd like to introduce our guest co-host, Andrew Fleming Dunn, a Twitch streamer and co-host of the film podcast, The Rotating Chair. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And I'm very pleased to introduce our special guest. Peter Adkins is an author and screenwriter, having penned the scripts for the first two and best Hellraiser sequels, as well as one of the most iconic films starring Jin, Wishmaster. Thank you so much for joining us, Peter. Oh, thank you guys for having me. It's great to be here. Thanks. Absolutely. So how we like to start off first is to give a general summary of the of the film in question. Um, Andrew, would you like to take it? Sure. This is going to be long-winded and terrible, but here we go. <laughs> long-winded and excellent. Hell yeah. Uh, arriving approximately 10 months after the release of Scream and feeling like a charmingly defiant middle finger to the rising tide of smarmy meta-slashers, Wishmaster splashed onto the screen on September 17, 1997. Produced by horror maestro Wes Craven and directed by Robert Kurtzman, the K and K and B. Written by Peter Atkins, today's special guest. Um, it features... It's pretty much the all-you-can-eat buffet of, of 90s horror. Um, you have people like Robert England, Tony Todd, Joseph Pilato, Ted Raimi, Kane Hodder, Angus Scrim, Reggie Bannister, Buck Flowers, Andrew Divoff, and Pazuzu. Um, it features photography by Nightmare on Elm Street's Jacques Haitken and music by Friday the 13th's Harry Manfredini. This is pretty much the movie that little me was wishing for over every slice of delivered pizza and VHS tape I could rent on that particular weekend. Um, And it's also the movie that introduced us to the truth behind our favorite blue Robin Williams voiced genie creatures with the gin. The movie itself is uh, about a gin trapped in a fire opal who's accidentally awoken hundreds of years later. And he finds himself collecting souls as he tries to raise his power and grant the three wishes he needs from the person who woke him so he can tear down the veil between his world and ours. Wishmaster is a wonderfully gory and dryly funny ode to old school practical effects and the gonzo cameo-laden universal monster in Roger Corman films Mold. The movie sounds so much better than it actually is when you do that. <laughs> <laughs> <Fantastic>. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to cut that out because I like to keep everything truthful on the podcast. Uh-huh. <laughs> very sweet. Very sweet. Love it. Thank you, Andrew. That's perfect. It's a great setup. When we have someone on that's associated with the show, we like to kind of start off by doing general impressions. Sure. Andrew, would you like to to go first? Sure, absolutely. I actually saw this in theaters. Um, and uh, Scream, <laughs> Scream was kind of the end of, you used to be able to just to go to a theater, a person over the age of 21 could buy a ticket, you could walk in, but due to Scream's popularity, that kind of ended. And we discovered that when we tried to go see Wishmaster. And it resulted in my friend's six foot six, 300 pound father screaming that if his kids want to go see a goo-ridden genie movie, <laughs> he'll be damned if they can't. So we walk in, and, and from the very opening moments, when the skeleton rips itself out of a man's body and uh, people are turning into trees and walls, I just was kind of absolutely charmed. I mean, I was a video store kid, uh, <laughs> and this was like everything. I, this, this, this was like everything I rented on a weekend, but thrown into a blender. And I, I'm a huge fan of uh, of Hellraiser too. So mm-hmm. this is one of those like rare instances where the poster heavily advertises the writer and you know that was a weird i'm sorry to interrupt i mean yeah it's so rare because no you know nobody gives a crap about who writes these things and and i wish that that was because um the people involved were so kind and respectful that uh, it was purely contractual and not my doing what it was is um i assume i can tell this story I, i don't think bob would mind they put as as they should because that's how they're trying to sell it. They slapped Wes's name right at the top of the poster. Wes Craven presents, yep. and th- there is there's a what do they call it? like a rider, uh, uh, like a permanent clause in the signatory agreement between studios and the Directors Guild that a director's name cannot be smaller on a poster than a producer's name. So, and I, I, again, I. I I don't know that Bob's people called up and said, what the fuck, Robert Kurtzman, make sure his name's as big as Wes's, Um, or whether it's just an automatic legal requirement. But there's also a legal requirement in the signatory agreement between the studios and the Writers Guild that a director's name cannot be bigger than a writer's name. So you got, it's a bizarre poster. And I think until fairly recently, it was kind of unique where, Never mind the poor cast whose names are the, you know, the usual size. Starring no one. Yeah. <laughs> right. They're, they're down there in, in, in the usual small, whatever that font is, you know, that classic poster mm-hmm. font that they use for the box credits at the bottom. And you've got this Wes Craven at the top, and then me and Robert, uh, the like were the stars of the movie, which was insane. But of course, you know, it looks really good on my wall. It was uh, it was an unexpected treat, um, but I, I just wanted to to throw that in that it wasn't it wasn't a, a unique sign of artistic respect within the industry. <laughs> it was the usual legal requirements that uh, these it, things have to be done. I've seen it a couple of times since. You see it on TV spots when the director. Because, you know, fucking directors, they're, ne- they're never content with the directed by credit. They have to have the a film by as well. And if, if they Carpenter get, presents. Right, exactly. And if, if so if there's some legal thing where 
if they get that single card alone in a trailer or a TV spot, they have to throw the writer's name up in again in a similar size font. And <laughs> yeah, you know, your name on the poster comes before his too, so it's kind of great. Right. Right. <laughs> no, for me, it's like a, a kid. Like I, I was a huge Fangoria kid. Um, like sure. I, read, I had subscriptions. I read every issue. I hunted down back issues at like flea markets. Um, seeing that poster. So the first thing you see is Wes Craven. And of course, I'm like 14 at the time. And Wes Craven That's a is. a big plus. Yeah. He's God. I looked down. Peter Atkins. It's like, holy fuck. I saw Hellbound t- before I saw Hellraiser. And... I, I think I mentioned it to you when um, I approached it you. It must have period. made no sense whatsoever. <laughs> it didn't, but I was... Yeah, right, but, but it was glorious, or glorious was nonsense, right? Utterly transfixed. And I mean, I immediately went and got Hellraiser. Because um, this was like the odd time where VHSs, for some reason, were like $60, $70. You know, like they were so absurd. Wow, and, yeah, right. That's, yeah. So you, you you had like random ones, and if you if you had two VCRs, you could rent something and then copy it that way. Oh sure, not that Which we I would have never do done. Who would do such a thing? My responsible. <laughs> Thank you, HBO Free Weekends, as well. So many of my so many yeah, movies right. in my mind are etched with the "Thank you for watching the HBO Free Weekend." Scrolling down, sure, the sure. I can't watch the Burbs without seeing it. But uh, like, <laughs> but your Hellbound had such an impact on me. I, I mentioned it. The mattress scene with the razor is forever burned into my brain Ooh, is one of the yeah. most skin crawling things <laughs> I've ever seen. And then for me, you know, the majesty of something like Leviathan and that vision of hell is, is so beautiful and unique. So your name was a huge selling point. And then, you know, I knew who Robert Kurtzman was because K and B, you know, horror fans, sure, absolutely. You know, we deify not just the actors, the writers, the directors, but the makeup people are such a, an intrinsic part. Uh, oh, of yeah, yeah, we do. Exactly. Our yeah. tribe does. I mean, yeah. since you say you're a Fangori kid, because, you know, I don't know. I'm like, I'm 30 years older than you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know how many generations that is in creative terms. But my equivalent, we were all famous monsters kids. The, yes, the magazine Forrest famous Ackman. Monsters of Filmland. Yep. But but it's exactly the same thing. I mean, that's completely recognizable. That was like everything I knew at the age of eight, nine, ten, eleven. I learned from from the pages of Furries magazine, and I, of course, I see that that's exactly the same for you guys. It was, and I, I loved Fangoria too, of course. But I was an adult by the time that came out. Yeah, right. But yeah, yeah. But no, that's, you know, thank you so much. And but of course. Our tribe is not the general population, so no. it's like, yeah, Wes, Wes's name at the top of the poster, sure, that means something to the general public. You were probably one of the 17 people <laughs> in America who thought, oh, Kurtzman and Atkins, interesting. I promise you all the 16 others would sleep over at my house yeah. on the weekend. Sure, sure. What we saw, because you know those three names, it's like, holy shit, it's directed by Kurtzman. All right, Atkins is writing it, you know, Wes, uh, Scream. I mean, this was like 10 months after Scream. And sure. if you weren't there for the the Scream zeitgeist, it's hard to explain what Scream did, mm-hmm. um, particularly for oh, well, the well, genre. It's, yeah. It, you know, it's interesting, actually. You, um, what you pointed out to me, though, was that I sort of get the chronology wrong in my head because um, experientially and, and culturally in terms of the genre, without doubt, Scream was – the coming flavor and Wishmaster was yes last gasp of the, of the previous flavor, and I think I, I'd 
I'd altered the chronology slightly in my head, and I thought, yeah, we just got out there, and then Scream came along and changed everything. <laughs> but but yeah, you're right. In fact, it was it preceded us, didn't it? it That's right. By, yeah, that, like a year, I think. Yeah, it was uh, December of 96, Scream came out. And uh, mm-hmm. this was September of uh, 97. And, right, uh, yeah. Right. And then you lapped it in 97. It was perfect. Yeah, it was. But for us, I mean, because, you know, you saw the tide rising because then everything was like Kevin Williamson is writing every movie that we're going to see that's horror related in theaters. Sure. Or, you know, you had like Urban Legends. I know what you did last summer. Like all these things were happening. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah, this, the... And again, you know, I love those movies too. Yes. But yeah, the um, the 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 not recondite. When you get to my age, you can't remember the recursive sort of the recursive horror movie, the horror movie that knows it's a horror movie yes. and plays with the rules and winks at the audience. Doesn't stop you having a great time. No, but um, but yeah, that definitely became the mode. It's followed almost immediately by the torture porn. Yes, and, it was like, and suddenly we, with our prosthetic creatures, were like. Fuck, we're yeah. in the retirement home and we're not 40. <laughs> what the hell? Well, yeah, I, but I, I feel like that's coming back though a lot oh, in oh, the last, yes. uh, in the last, over the last 10 years, I think. Like, oh, because you had, I mean, first you had this big rebirth of like quality American kaiju films, what with, uh, sure, sure, you know, like Cloverfield and the stuff that came after, and then a lot of good international stuff. But then now I think there's been a bit of a backlash against VFX too. So people are coming mm-hmm. to see good monster films, but they also appreciate the practical more than I think they did 10 years ago. And that's coming back a bit. Yes. Yeah, it's very interesting. Oh, I wanted to give a shout out actually. I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned it again uh, because you, you said specifically about the skeleton clawing its way out of the guy's body. That was awesome. such a great image. Well, I, but I wanted to get, thank you. Um, and it's love. I mean, you, you know, you named several of the incidents in that opening sequence, which which is great. You know, does, does my heart wonders. But specifically, that the skeleton effect was most of it's K and B, obviously the fantastic work of K and B. But my mate Gary Tonicliffe, fellow Brit who'd oh, worked yeah. in Hellraiser movies, he was brought in as second uh, effects unit, and the skeleton clawing its way out was one of Gary's. So I wanted to. Uh, I wanted uh, to give yeah. a nod That's to him. That's great. Thank you for that. Legend um, right there. Yeah, no, I mean... Like, uh, like when I was... Uh, I loved this movie the first time that I saw it. And I saw it not, a little bit after it came out, because when it came out, I was like 11. Right. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know what Jin were other than Aladdin. Uh, sure. So... Yeah. Uh, well, neither did I. <laughs> <laughs> was this like your introduction it, to that? Neither did anyone. Maybe it's like... <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I think like one of the things is we'll, we'll get into a bit in the deep in the setup to the deep dive portion, the, the sort sure, of sure. where I talk about the entity. Uh, our Western conception of Jin is so limited and like mm-hmm. misunderstood and partial. It's so it, it's kind of silly, honestly. Yes. Um, there's a lot oh. of inter you know intercultural ignorance, I guess. Um, oh yeah, and. <laughs> I, I was, I, but, and the movie, by the way, was written in a full state of intercultural ignorance. And I, <laughs> I mean, you know, marginally less ignorant than um, than other things which threw it around. But no, I'm, I'm, you know, we're all as we should be. We're increasingly aware of you know cultural appropriation and and uh, who gets to say what about what. But um, 
So, so I'm very grateful that I at least had the energy to do enough research to throw a few alternate names and name the religions from which the myths grew out and those things. But um, yeah, it's it's still probably a deeply offensive Westernized reading of, <laughs> of somebody else's mythology. You know. Yeah, but, I mean, I mean, now movie, that's like a so sort of thing. Be, yeah. Right. I mean, the, the the point, I guess, is like, and now we're aware of that issue more but at least it was done with an intent of respect you know oh yeah and that i that's i have i have friends who are persian i have friends who are from the middle east who absolutely love wishmaster because it's like the stories that scared them growing up they're like i i came over to america and it's like boom there it is it's like oh that's that's great that's 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 lovely to hear it's actually even people who don't like horror movies like my friend my friend with sam his uh grandmother was actually like a huge wishmaster fan because she was convinced jinns were real and she's oh, like, that's, that's great that's terrific it. yeah I, I have friends that like uh that have store like family stories uh-huh. going back about like relatives generations past interacting with Jin that still care about the film you know yeah. because there aren't yeah. that many in the west that attempt to be respectful no and sure. it's and they have fun with it too because like for them it's just you know i get to confront that bedtime story when I was a child, sure. I, I get to hoot and holler at it. Cause which actually goes back to when this movie hit VHS, I, I bought it on VHS. Cause I, I really did. Like I, I, I adored this movie because it was just such a blast of fun. As you said, it was like the old guard kind of like our last hurrah. And these were the movies I grew up on, you know, when right. waiting for that amazing 10 minute special effects set piece where people <laughs> yeah, right. are, are getting attacked by piano wire and getting, I mean, this movie starts with that, that's Bob Cameo. Right? He's, he's yeah. the piano wire guy. Yeah. Piano wire guy. But I mean, we used to have party things, you know, we, we'd view this with like 10 of us just screaming. Oh, that's great. That's great. And, and I, I mean, thank, thank you. I mean, I think part of the reason it feels respectful rather than insulting to to foreign cultures is, is I tried. Um, but also, again, a t- tip of the hat to Andrew, Andrew Deboff, who, who plays the gin, because he brought uh, how, whatever nonsense I'd written for him to say, um, he brought the right kind of gravitas to the delivery of it mm-hmm. that made it feel like, well, we're certainly not laughing at this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know. Yeah, his performance, like, because I, uh, for my general impressions, I kind of wanted to talk about his performance because uh, when I watched it, it, there's so much about it that stuck in my memory even today. Uh like I love right out the gate, it commits to like the power of the jinn is manifesting as chaos, and you know you're a snake man now, and your skeleton is alive, and I'm doing what I want and having the time of my life. And right. there's so much intelligent malevolence in Devoff's performance, yeah, uh, and his nice, vocal inflection, nice, nice phrase and very accurate, yeah. yeah, yeah, because like it's it's so it's malevolently chaotic and intelligent and evil but it's very charismatic so you're kind of rooting for this terrifying being to succeed <laughs> well it's sure it's, it's always fun to watch a villain who's enjoying their kind of deeds and you get to every time like i love the scene with tony todd when they're just going back and he's just waiting yeah. for the wish to happen and he's like come on and then like come on come you on could, you right. could get it you, he's getting annoyed and then it happens and he's just like oh thank god yeah, he's like you gotta want something right it's like this weird for like horror fans that scene is so excellent oh my god they are evenly matched right now yep this is so rare 
Right. Yep. Yeah, you know, don't fuck with Candyman. He's, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I'm particularly pleased you mentioned Tony Spot because that's the only one that I'm responsible for getting it. All, all those people you mentioned earlier, and you're right, it's a, it's a beautiful castle. It's like a, a school reunion of the 80s horror guys. Mm-hmm. And 99.9% of that is from Bob because, you know, he put makeup on all these people mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as part of KMB. So he had them all in the Rolodex. So all the, all well, they're not cameos, you know, the, the real parts, the parts in the movie were all... Uh, because of a phone call he could make or a contact he could make. Um, but they, I, I, I'm assuming he hadn't worked with Tony. I don't know. But for whatever reason, Shannon Golding, who was the executive in charge of the thing, s- called me and said, we're trying to get Tony Todd for the doorman. Um, will you talk to him? Um, and I only realized afterwards that, she is she, again this sort of touching assumption that everybody knows everybody, and because he'd done Candyman with Clive, and because of my connection with Clive, I guess Shannon just assumed, well, you all live in the same frat house, right? <laughs> um, so she set up this this call, and and anyway, I, apparently I was uh, persuasive enough to get Tony to do the movie. So uh, I'm so that's my little check mark, but all the others. Uh, uh, Robert and Kane and everybody I'm going to forget and Reggie uh, and Angus Scrim does the voiceover. Oh, you know what oh, a way to start. These, this is all Bob's Rolodex. This was uh, oh my god, thanks to him. The Angus Scrim narration just—you know exactly what you're in for. That man's voice was and his uh, yeah, it's great. his yeah. perfectly. It gives me joy to hear it. Yeah, I, I, I love Angus. Sure, sure, we all do. I, I'm so impressed too that like Devoff's voice stands out in a film that's opened by Angus Scrim and has Tony Todd, some of the most iconic sure, voices. Sure. And it's still just like oh, that grovelly. It's like sandpaper across your face. It's mm-hmm. it's upsetting yeah. and awesome. It's it's actually perverted the way I say wish. I can't. I have to. <laughs> Say the word in my head normally first, otherwise I'll just wish. You know? right. Yeah, he has that trick of like I, I, I again. I, I don't know his process. I don't know the the thought sequence he's going through. But I mean, obviously, he decided to to hit the sibilance to give some serpentine it's evocation. Perfect. It's perfect. But he he obviously he does that with his s's. But wish isn't an s sound. It's a sh sound nevertheless mm-hmm. andrew somehow makes it like a sibilant hiss it's fantastic mm-hmm. yeah it definitely sounds otherworldly and inhuman and it's I, perfect for the i world. read that he had trouble like you know he he and uh robert were talking about like the voice is what really needs to stand out and he's like shit what do i do so he's kind of working <laughs> on it but with the makeup he couldn't really eat you know because he didn't want to tear the latex you know right, right. mess it up so he's like i'm drinking protein shakes and eating jelly beans and all the phlegm in my throat just caught in a tape <laughs> <laughs> and he's like so here we are that's I'm doing this now you know kurtzman was like hell yes this is what we're doing so he's like i couldn't clear my throat for like 12 to 16 hours a day just <laughs> <laughs> that's great if only, if only the audience knew how many like pivotal or iconic moments in movies are based entirely on pragmatism and accidents. Yeah. The famous one is like Indiana Jones, the scene where like the guy wants to do this like elaborate sword duel sure. and then he just shoots him. It's because yeah. Harrison Ford was tired that day. 
<laughs> he just didn't want to do it. It wasn't in the script. And and we all rem- it got the biggest cheer, you know, because again, I I was what I don't know how old was I? Twenty five when that came out. Um, it, that got the biggest cheer in the theater. That's the most. I mean, it's full of good moments. Don't get me wrong, but um, it's perfect. it still does. Yeah, yeah that that kind of. Again, the sort of the wink at the audience that doesn't mock the genre, exactly. but um, but says, "Yeah, we're all in on this." Is isn't yeah. this great? Um, exactly. I think that's exactly what works so well for me for the film because it's written and performed and directed from a place of it's like a love letter to monster movies to horror fans. It knows exactly what it is, and it's done with love instead of mockery. And you yeah. can tell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I can't stand. I, I don't want any assholes slumming in my genre. It's like mm-hmm. when you get people who think they're above the form, fuck go, go make some stupid living room drama if that's what you want to do. I, I make thrillers, stand. not horror. I hate that. Yeah. Or like the, the oh, elevated yeah. horror term that, that gets yeah. people's goat. The thing that gets me on that is like, oh, like this is a, an emotional horror film. It's elevated horror. I'm like, yo, right. uh, horror films have used emotion and had arcs and complexity it, since like before Frankenstein. But like, sure. look at Frankenstein. Yep. It's tragic. Have you not I mean, seen look at a films? Canada Dr. Caligari, yeah. Mm-hmm. The whole premise of this show is that all of these things have so much more meaning than we sometimes think. And and they're an important way to talk about things that make us human, that that reveal certain aspects of existence that we wouldn't even think about. And it's a great way to actually like ask deeper questions. It, I, I always think it's funny. You, you look at the films, uh, the horror films or the horror novels that really hit the zeitgeist, that really um, get in there uh, with the culture. Is there? It, I always I always view it as like a, a cultural exorcism too it's almost like the world needs to get this shit out and oh this, sure yeah this thing allows us to do it you look at the timing of uh night of the living dead uh the exorcist right, get out right, like there's right. there's these benchmarks mm-hmm. sons of the lambs and and, and i think it, it's like an important thing that we as an entire species just we we breathe in the same ugly so we can like exhale something good maybe and nice it, nice sure you know and, yeah. and and sometimes we need that release and for me horror has always been that because i watch something like wishmaster and i sit there with a huge grin on my face as a person is turned to a tree person and another person <laughs> is having their skeleton come out the guy gets his jaw ripped off and i'm just I'm, I'm laughing my ass off, having a great time, and I, I totally understand why you someone, know. yeah, would look at me like you are you're a horrifying individual. Please leave my house. <laughs> um, but but it's like I need that because there's so much. Like after the events of yesterday, I actually watched uh, Wishmaster again last night, um, just because it was like I needed this 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 sure. thing. You know, I needed to just let it out, and it's it's such a wonderful thing, especially when you get something like like Wishmaster, which is just it just wants to entertain and it just wants you to have a good time. And then it delivers on that. And well, that's, it's fantastic. I mean, thank you again, guys. And I, it, it, at, the, at the risk of sounding like uh, the old guy on the porch, which I'm trying not to be yet, <laughs> um, but it is, it, it's lovely. You know, you, you do these things 30, I mean, Wishmaster is only is more like 20 years ago, but I, my first movie is now over 30 years ago. 
And the fact that people your age and even younger still find pleasure in these things, it's, just, it's fantastic for all of us. You know, it's really, it's, it's great to, uh, it's... To, know, to know that it can still, uh, ex- ex- that it can entertain, that it can help people, you know, pass yeah. a pleasant hour or two Absolutely. however unpleasant the detail might be right you know yeah <laughs> yeah it's yeah. i you know i look at it it's like it's uh no matter how bad my life is i did not have my skeleton rip out of my body there's always you know? that yeah. Yeah. yeah well right exactly. not yet. nothing turned me not into yet. snake man <laughs> so. not yet i have not been turned into stained glass which can we just say how horrifying it is that you can hear him screaming even after he's been turned into glass yeah oh yeah <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and you watch that he is sentient or like the sister in the painting is sentient and you're like uh, oh she's having a yeah. bad day yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well it's, it's funny you mentioned that i mean that, that that's a smaller example but but yeah the, the the screen within the stained glass sort of got me at a cast and crew screening i i wonder before we kind of dig into the the folklore a little bit, ask you a few questions about how, uh, about Wishmaster and how it came to be. Sure. Sure. Um, so how did that, that project get started and how did you get involved on it? Um, it was (laughs) infuriatingly for, for many people. It is one of those things (laughs) about, it's not what, you know, it's who, you know, um, but, but the reason I knew the person, concerned was because I'd already done some work. So uh, what it was, was a, a friend of mine, uh, who sadly is no longer with us, um, who was an, a, an executive called Eric Salzgeber. He had worked at New World, Roger Corman's old company who made uh, Hellbound, had made Hellraiser and had made Hellbound. And Eric and I had become friends. He had left New World and was working for Pierre David's company. Pierre David was the Canadian producer who who'd produced a couple of early Cronenbergs. Um, Eric himself, by the way, I should say this because he's no longer with us and I like to memorialize people's work. Eric became, uh, he sold a couple of screenplays. Uh, he had a TV movie made for one of his scripts, but he also wrote several scripts for the Hellraiser comic book um, that I did a couple of things for as well that Marvel did in the nineties. Mm, anyway, that, that, that was Eric. So, um, this will make you lose a lot of respect for me um, <laughs> because this is how it came about. I get a phone. Eric and I are friends. So we just you know, talk turkey to each other. And the phone rings and I pick it up and it's Eric. And he says, hey, you want to write an evil genie movie for Pierre? And I said, <laughs> what? And he said, an evil genie movie. And I said, fuck off. That's the most ridiculous. Piss off. If you think I'm going to come in and pitch. And he said, nobody's got to pitch shit, asshole. Hellbound's just made 22 million. If you want the job, it's yours. Do you want the fucking job? <laughs> and suddenly, it didn't seem a stupid idea at all. <laughs> uh, and that's and sadly, that's the God's honest truth. It was, uh, I genuinely thought, give me a break evil genie fuck you uh, and then they said we'll pay you um so, <laughs> and, but then then i did my research and i read about ifrit and jins and zoroastrianism and ahura mazda and it was fascinating stuff so um so it was an entirely venal and pragmatic uh <laughs> initiation point but then the, the 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 richness and strangeness uh, and amb- and ambiguity 
of the mythology itself really held my interest. I I mean, I I don't want to try and oversell (laughs) Wishmaster as a a meditation on Eastern (laughs) because it certainly isn't. It's a balls-to-the-wall, not just a horror movie, a monster movie, as you guys rightly say. Um, Mm. But, you know, you have to have something that there's, there's got to be salt on the meat. You know, there's got to be there's got to be some spice in there, some some flavor that you think, yeah, this this, this will hold my attention. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was, and it's not like I I, I don't want to again I don't want to pretend I went and read a twenty six volume treatise on uh, on Zoroastrian <laughs> demons. Um, mm-hmm. But but you know I read at least one Encyclopedia Britannica article, and um, <laughs> yeah you know, I mean it wasn't pre-internet technically, but it was certainly pre-Wikipedia. So it, it yeah. was a case of um, like old school books and Xerox articles and stuff. Um, but I mean that, that that was it. So it was it was the, the usual <laughs> mixture of crass commercial appeal to make a living and wow. This stuff is rich and fascinating. And, and also, I mean, if if I was, well, who am I kidding? I like to. I was going to say if I put my pretentious hat on for one moment, like I'm not always fucking wearing it. I'm wearing it right now. Um, <laughs> my pretentious hat would say this: that um, having been an Inglit student, um, what. The the notion that the 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 jinn lived had been created before man, and then in a way had been ignored by their creator once man was invented, obviously pressed all these memory buttons um, of of the Miltonic Satan, you know, better better mm-hmm. to rule in hell than serve mm-hmm. in heaven, and so this notion, the the angry revengeful spurned child um the race of the jinn who had been ignored by the creator in favor of man uh you know could translate into a kind of personal animus for the jinn um so you know that that that's what that's what got the creative juices boiling yeah, I'm. Uh, um, I'm so glad you mentioned that because my my next question was I wanted to ask you sort of like how did the Jin character and its sort of goals evolve because it has concrete like literally take back the earth for very pragmatic yeah exactly right. like for the thing that I am and my people if you will if you can call them people <laughs> right um and I love that aspect where it was this sort of like deeper like vengeful like a like an mo it wasn't. There's evil in the character in the sense that it loves screwing with your wishes and torturing sure. you, but its plan has deep. Its purpose has deeper aspects. Yes, I mean, I mean, within within his own species and from his like all good villains, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, he's not the villain in his story. He enjoys the villainy. <laughs> You're absolutely right, mm-hmm. um, but. Um, no, his uh, he's not human. He needn't have. We shouldn't get bent out of shape that he lacks empathy for the human because um, until we're all vegans, we can't really we can't play that moral high ground mm-hmm. card. Yeah, um, and he is he's a different species. And but I guess but I, he's mean. 
It's like we yeah. can't, yes, but we just we we just uh, we have to kill them to to live, and that's true. But I guess the gin are more like cats of the spirit world. It's like you know they don't just eat those mice; they fuck with those mice. Yeah, so mean. So I guess so. I guess I am saying the gin are kind of mean because they they fuck with us. They don't just. But yeah, he he is looking to. To break the veil between the worlds and and risk, it it is like the you know, the, the, the fall of man stories, fallen angel stories. It's um, they want to reclaim the glory that once was theirs. Blah blah blah. You know all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what's kind of fun with it too. When I was watching it last night, I actually watched it. I, I'm being dead serious with this as the uh-huh. Jin's rags to riches story because when he he's trapped, <laughs> he's trapped in the fire opal. He comes yeah, back. Right. He's a homeless man in an alley. Nice. You know, he's, he's he's collecting his souls. He gets his suit. He looks good. People are hitting on him, and you know he he goes to a, a really fancy party. It's true. You know that was pretty woman. Yeah, <laughs> nice. that, that of course was completely intentional. It's 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 kind of a it never. Thing. I mean, that's exactly right. You're you're absolutely right. There's a, there's a microcosm there. There's a little analogy of western capitalist imperative mm-hmm. it's like he's it's an immigrant story the good and gecko wouldn't approve of exactly mm-hmm. it's steve Mnuchin's story it, it, it's kind of something you don't usually get within a, a a monster film you know uh particularly one that's just kind of like this which is just like let's have a blast guys you know turn sure. your brain off and enjoy yourself but sure. there's he has like the gin has an arc and I almost felt kind of bad because, you know, it's like you've been ignored by God. These people don't understand. Yeah. You just got a nice suit and now you're back. He looks the- good in the suit. It's like, yeah, you've got, you've got to give it yeah. to him. It's like, yeah. Well, and then another thing, another aspect too is actually even a step further. Um, when he's in, he's obviously like all regal. He has a, a, a throne inside the, the gym. Um, he yeah. has like people to torture because he's bored, you know, so he's got entertainment. Yeah. But when he emerges every time for the first time, he's like a weird deformed infant version at first, too. So he has to even just become like the short. He doesn't even start off like the naked Schwarzenegger. Like he has to build to the naked Schwarzenegger. Oh, my God. And then he's homeless. Right. Yes. But he's not naked Schwarzenegger. He's naked Vern Troyer. You know, Vern Troyer was a little little gym. At first, yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And then to even get to his full stature takes time and effort. And then he's homeless. And then. Oh, wow. I actually. I think the gin might be our hero in this story. Well, (laughs) wait. Were we assuming he wasn't? Yeah. Right. Ooh, all right. I've been viewing it wrong for 23 years. That's speciesist. That's speciesist. This is a pro-monster <laughs> podcast. I always assume that the monster is who we're rooting for. Uh, this movie contains one of my favorite pieces of dialogue I've ever heard. I want to know if you wrote this, if this was improv. Oh, God. It's going to be something some fucking actor improvised <laughs> on set. Because it makes, uh, it makes go, me laugh. Go ahead, man. Oh, Break sorry, my fucking heart. Uh, Buck Flowers to Reggie Bannister. <laughs> yeah. You big bald headed oh, no. baboon. No, no. Miscomplected well, afterbirth of a Chinese gangbanger, you educated idiot. Where, where did this come from? The 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 great bit of that, <laughs> miscomplected afterbirth, your buck. <laughs> On the spot, out of his mouth, and you know, as soon as you yeah. said it, I knew. 
I knew it was going to be that one. No, the guy was fucking brilliant. I I, I had written the character as, as that kind of character, and several of the lines are mine, but Buck just <laughs> fucking ran with it. Um, it's like it's second nature to him. It's like that's how, that's how he spoke to everybody. Yeah, <laughs> he's been waiting to say that all day. Yeah. He he was just. Uh, well, I like to think there's a whole no. Buck Flowers like extended universe where every movie where he plays like a homeless drunk man, it's the same guy. It's the, I, yeah. I want it to be the same. Exactly, exactly right. Yep. Yes, that's canon I, now. I, I want to see that edit. I want somebody to get all the Buck Flowers <laughs> footage available and uh, and just it's, string it. Yeah. <laughs> The, the picaresque adventure. I will endorse that. Of, of, of the articulately foul-mouthed hobo asshole. Uh, and, uh, I, I did want to... Oh, and by the way, I, I, I should say that unlike, you know, authors are a little touchy when, when actors make stuff up, and um, but we hate it more when they just do it with that. Buck was a total gent, and... Um, he came up before the. I was lucky enough on Wishmaster. I was I was there throughout. Um, I was on set every day, and but just came up and he said, uh, "I'm trying. I I, I want to get it right." For him. <laughs> he sort of half grinned at me and said, uh, "I got a few extra things I'd like to say to this guy. That all right?" And uh, and I said, "Yeah, fuck." First of all, nice to ask. Knock yourself out. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I I knew it was going to be that line. Thank you very fucking much. And <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, that was that was that Ugh. was Mr. Flowers, the best <laughs> the best line in the movie. Thanks a lot, guys. I just. <laughs> it, to be fair, to be fair, that would be the best line in it's most just, movies. I... <laughs> I, it, it stuck right, with me, and right. I've always wanted to use it in a situation, but I've never had the chance. And it, it upsets me that I've never been so angry at someone that I can't just throw that out. It's actually my <laughs> ringtone. Oh, that's great! I, mean, I, I, I did. I didn't ask him. Um, so my assumption, and it is purely an assumption because I didn't ask him, because um, I, I think he, he liked us and his fellow actors to think Jesus Christ book just makes this shit up on the spot. It, it, there was no flub. You know what I mean? It was like, boom, it was there. And I, I tend to think that the book was a secret writer. I, I, in fact, I, I'd love to think that I'd love to think we could find the notebook <laughs> one day because uh, it came out of his mouth with such practiced ease that I thought this is not technically improvisation. Uh, you know, you sat up at the very least. You sat up last night writing things, or you, you've got a fantastic notebook full of this. I was shit. absolutely convinced it was. <laughs> but he's like, but again, mm. I, yeah, right. I didn't ask him. For all I know, he legitimately like- made it up on the spot. So. That that's what he wanted. I, I'd us like to, to think, think that maybe his hobo coats are actually when he if he opened them up, it would just be filled with instead of like jewels, just like post-it notes of like one-liners oh, and stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah sure. I, I think what it is 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 like this is just his like tears and rain, and he hasn't told anyone. <laughs> oh man, it's um yeah. I just I had to, it's 
it's one visual, of my favorite lines in, i think all of film like it just it's so because it, it felt like as you said he just delivered it's just the way it came out just felt so i thought it was scripted um because it kind of carries with it your uh um you're more eloquent uh even though let's say the words aren't eloquent but it, it fit your your the rhythms i'm used to in like a script Oh no, it's eloquent as hell. I, I don't think no, I've ever used the right? word discomplex before in my life. I, I've yeah. certainly ripped it off since. After the birth of a Chinese gangbanger. Yeah, it's Chinese gangbanger. Um, yeah. I, I did also want to know too because I know the film was fairly low budget. I think it was around like five million. Um, I, I think five million is what they claim. As you know, whatever they claim is already exaggerated. I. Th- to the best of my knowledge, I think the actual production budget was about oh, wow. three and a half, which, which wasn't it was that wasn't no, chicken feed in nineteen ninety six. Considering the scope but, of yeah, the film, you, know, you know, also K and B. Well, I mean that so was that was. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that the great. Well, I mean, Bob Bob's a fantastic guy, and uh, I'm so glad they got him to direct it anyway. But of course. The, the little fringe benefit, the little concomitant benefit of getting Bob is um, you got KNB. I mean, you, yeah. they got paid. You know, it, it wasn't like a package deal. But, um, uh, yeah, that was that certainly – as I say, it not only brought in a lot of people who might have said no to us otherwise, um, but, yeah, we got all that, uh, all that great – uh, Was stuff. there ever a plan or was there ever in something in, like, a draft where maybe we got to see the Jin homeworld? Did you ever maybe in your own head just what what is the Jin realm? The homeworld of the universe? Um, only in as much <laughs> – th- it makes me sound so shallow. <laughs> only in as much as I needed it for the two scenes. The, the, the thing that um, – no, it, it, I, the the hell in Hellraiser two, um, there's a picture of that hell that is larger in my mind than we see in the movie, uh, in, in the sense that you know, like the architectures and the suburbs and the provinces and the hierarchies, um, the the sort of the interior of the sort of gem world. Um, which is which is both outside the gin and inside the gin. He he's got that you know weird psychobabble one hundred and one line to Alex about uh, I am bound by what I, I I contain. What the hell does he say? I should have watched this movie. I haven't watched it for twenty three years. He, he says something. I am bound by that which I contain. Contain that which I. It made sense in the movie, but but this implication that it's both a, a, an interior mindscape as much as it is an actualized alternate world um <laughs> well that's my excuse it meant that I, that I didn't have to think outside i mean almost literally think outside the set that i saw um uh, because it was like well is this the jinn's universe or is this simply this particular gin's bizarre mind game mindscape where he fucks with people. Um, so it's really the hard whole to say. notion of um, the worlds between the worlds, obviously I find, you know, yeah. fascinating and interesting, but no, if I'm going to be honest with you, I did not picture you that because I knew yeah. that was never, it, you know, 
I had entertained the possibility that just as with Hellboy, not, not that I had anything to do with Hellraiser, that was utterly and completely Clive's thing, the first movie, but in Hellbound, uh, literally what we could do was, um, hey, let's go to hell. What, what's the Cenobite's hell look like? Who's in charge here? Um, and so I, I, you know, I had a vague tickle in the back of my mind that possibly um, similarly, there could have been a, a Wishmaster 2 in which we might have looked at, because I did, you know, in broad strokes, set up that notion of the wanderers between the worlds and the worlds between the worlds. So maybe we could have gone there, but I never thought it through. And, and of course, you know, they shafted me and Bob and Jack Shoulder did us both out of a job. So, so that... And and they yes. went the other way. You know, they there was not an expansion of the mythology. What wasn't really didn't appear to be in their purview for for Wishmaster Two. It was. Do you um, wish it went differently? Yeah, I I sometimes wish it went a different place. I must admit. Um, <laughs> but you know, it, it gave Andrew oh, another yeah. gig. So uh, I'm, I'm he really is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like uh, when he gets the face and he, he can pass as a human, just he's so still. And in the way he cocks his head down, it's just, it's such a predator pose. Yeah, like, right, I kept thinking right. of a shark. Yeah, because even like the shape of his face, you know, like it gets very angular down to the nose. And yeah, and it's right. so interesting too, because like his eyes, uh, they they look like he's squinting when he's not, because his vision is so <laughs> and I, laser focused. I think he doesn't blink at right. all when he's the gin. I don't think he he blinks once in mm-hmm. the film, and it's. I'd say that like. I like the I like the sequel. It's it's my favorite of the sequels, the immediate sequel, uh, the yeah. second one. But I don't think the I don't think the writing lands as well as the original. I don't no. think it's well, as consistent. Of course not. Per good Lord, of course man. not. Of course not. But it's still good <laughs> yes. because of his performance. Yes. Oh yeah, no, I don't doubt it. No, no, it, I'm I'm sure that's true. And uh, uh, the performance, and then simply you know the guy's presence. He, he's very dynamic, and uh, you're you're. The thing about guys who can hold your attention on the screen, guys or women who can hold your attention on the screen is is literally that. It's because they can hold your attention on the screen. There are some performers who might be very talented. Um, but the charisma vacuums. <laughs> they, they don't have that. There's, there's a thing that makes you go, right. what's that guy up to? Even if he's not talking, what's that guy up to? What's that girl thinking? There, there are people who's... Uh, who have a, a well? I guess you know that's why they use the magnetism or, or charisma. There's something right. about simply the presence. So I'm, I'm sure that's true. And I'm not entirely sure I've watched <laughs> the sequel from beginning to end. So I must admit, I mean, I'll just get the the tiny bit of bad blood out there. The the tortured need to get to a go fuck yourself wish kind of made me groan a little bit um Mm -hmm. because you know obviously we can all think of that the point is not to um but it is that one right it is number two where there's yeah i haven't seen the sequels in a while i know one of them like doesn't the like gabriel show up at some point like 
I yeah. don't know. I, I, one of the, genuinely, the I genuinely have not seen three and four. I think it's Michael in the third one. I haven't seen them, but I read up about them, and I think it's Michael in the third one. I caught one. them late night on cable. It was one of those things like you're drunk at three in the morning. It's on Sci-Fi right. Channel, and you're like, I know this, and or do I know this? And like, what the hell's happening? <laughs> it, it, it's so bizarre. We have, in Wishmaster, we have Chris Lemon, the son of Jack Lemon, who was one half of the movie's odd couple. And we also have, and it's please Jack forgive me if you right? listen to this, it's nephew. It's, it's nephew. But yeah, we, yes, exactly. <laughs> we have a Klugman. So we have, we have one half of TV's odd couple's bloodline and one half of the movie's odd couple bloodline. Uh, which is, just, I also, you know, that'll that'll show up. That'll show up on one of these horror trivia. Uh, that'll that'll be a real supplement right. from the boys' uh, trivia answer. Uh, Chris, Chris Lemon was hilarious, by the way. Um, uh, he really had his dad's um, mm-hmm. comic rhythm. It was. Uh, he became a writer himself, I think. Um, I'm not. I'm not. We we lost touch. Um, but I. I I'll, I'll look him up on IMDb afterwards because uh, he, he certainly wrote a couple of stage pieces and I think wrote so, a couple of screenplays. Um, just to get one last question out because I, I think it's supposed to, and, and we've brushed on sure. uh, we've brushed mm-hmm. on Andrew Divoff. Um, how did his audition? Because I know at that point he had been in some stuff and he was often like a heavy or you know, but I think he only had maybe two things you could consider like a a lead or a co lead. Um, how did he? How did his name come up? Because he's it's interesting, and I don't want to—I don't want this to come off as insulting to him because I don't—it shouldn't be taken that way. But he's not a traditionally good-looking man. But I'll be goddamned if he isn't seductive in the film, like completely. And right, no, I yeah. think again, there's that. that I mean, two. Th- first of all, I'll answer the pragmatic side of it. I am. I wasn't present in the audition. I, I know that it had. Uh, it was. It was a relatively open audition. Um, and I know that it came down to three people, and then, but essentially two people. Ugh, I don't want to be a prick. One of whom I probably shouldn't name because he went on to a career of his own. So, because it might be like the sort of Renee Zellweger thing. She doesn't want people knowing she was in Texas Chainsaw 3. Um but but it came down to Andrew and and this other perfectly talented uh, guy, um, and I honestly think I don't know I wasn't in the room, um, but I think it was precisely that thing we're talking about that there there was again no disrespect to the other man who I'm sure would have turned in a fine performance, um, but I think it was that thing I think that Andrew had uh, you know in person as well as on camera has that kind of. Again, like, like you, <laughs> I want to be careful. Has that sort of oddly attractive thing? It's like you. Um... He comes across as, um, and Andrew, I love you. Come on the show. You're amazing. Uh, he comes across as an inhuman thing that <laughs> yeah. could get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? That right. feels, it feels like something you don't understand wearing the face of a man. And you're still like, you could definitely yeah. convince me to do whatever. Yeah, I, I think, <laughs> yeah, right. It's perfect. No, and I, I, I think that's what it was. I, clearly, the, the thing is, as I'm sure you guys know, um, cast, casting 
it is a very it's, it's a strange and alchemical process, and and sometimes it can literally be a stranger comes in with no prior connections. I think somebody recommended Andrew, and I can't remember if it was the casting because you know casting directors are often yes. unsung heroes, especially of genre movies, because they they know all these people. They they've got portfolios and their pictures, and and um, but I'm not sure it was the casting director. Somebody one one of one of the producers might have either worked with Andrew or, or seen him or something. So I don't think it was a it was a cold call issue. Somebody had thought, "There's this guy. Let's bring him in." But um, but again, I, I'm really hypothesizing. You know, I, I I don't know. For all I know, he was dating one of the executives. <laughs> yeah. I know that's not the case, Andrew. If you're listening, it was a gag. Um, and so so that was the, the pragmatic thing. Was that I, I think literally? I think it's just the classic and time on. I think he nailed it in the audition. I, I think that's that, that's what it was. I love it. That's how he got the job. And I, I don't think there was nobody felt they needed a name, um, because I mean, you know because until Doug was Pinhead, Doug wasn't a name. Until Robert was Freddie, Robert. Well, I mean they'll probably hate me for saying that because they both worked before. But you know, um, nobody assumed you needed. A name, so that wasn't a factor. Yeah, like so they were. I, I would say that they were like respected, but not yeah. iconic. You know. Yeah. But I do want to, because um, I, I want to kind of dig into some of the themes too, because the the movie there's there's so much meaning attached to Jin, and uh, and it comes out in the film in interesting ways. So, uh, but I want to take a quick pit stop to the folklore, uh, if if. Um, before we do that, because it's 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 a perfect setup to why this film is so interesting to me. So in uh, in Islamic teachings in Middle Eastern folklore, and by the way, uh, fair warning, I'll probably butcher a bunch of pronunciation, but I'm I'm trying real hard. You and you um, and me both. Don't don't worry about it. <laughs> in Islamic teaching in Middle Eastern folklore, uh, jinns, commonly called genies in Western culture, are powerful, intelligent complex beings that are made out of, uh, according to the Quran, quote, the smokeless flame of fire. Uh, they're associated with shape-shifting, trickery, magic, possession, obsession, and sometimes madness. And they have many different descriptions according to the specific culture in which they're a part of the belief system. Mostly, they'll take the shape of a gigantic human, but they could be invisible. They could take other shapes, including a vast beast and... Uh, Jinn are interesting in folklore because they can bring great wealth, beauty, possessions to those they like or to magicians who can sort of harness their power and control them. Uh, But to those they dislike or who they've been directed to harm, they can bring disasters, uh, nightmares, tortures, and horrifying death, which should sound familiar to people who have seen the films. There it is. It's like, who could not read that and think, what a beautiful canvas to pull from. You got everything yes. you need in there. Exactly. Um, because the thing that really interested me in like digging into the folklore is that, because I looked at a few different sources, is that we have this cultural, jinn are considered, they're not considered this inherently universally evil thing right. in the folklore. They are a complex species like us. And there are good jinn and there are bad jinn and they are complex. It's Sturgeon's law, man. 
90% of them are assholes. <laughs> yeah, they're as complex as we are. Exactly. And so uh, while jinn were a part of pre-Islamic Arab mythology, their existence was affirmed and clarified by the Quran in the 7th century, common era. And pre-Islamic Arab sources depict jinn as divine agents in this sort of polytheistic world. Right. According to the Quran, however, jinn were created to worship God just like humans. And uh, so they're different from angels in the sense that angels are not really supposed to have free will. They're supposed to just be divine agents. That's it. Right. Uh, but jinn are often lumped together with humanity because jinn and humanity in the Quran are both free will beings, even though they have different originating sources. Right. And, right. So, and, and created subsequently to the angels, I think. And um, yeah, my memory. And, and again, I, you know, I really should have, <laughs> I should have looked at the movie again or, or at least reread my script before the show. But um, I, I think I, with typical Western arrogance and ignorance, I I cherry-picked both from the uh, the Islamic definitions that you're giving mm-hmm. um, and from the pre-Islamic because, you know, they were present. I, I don't want to say they were, they were a feature of the Zoroastrian religion because I'm far from sure that they were but they they were part of the mythology in the cultures where Zoroastrianism yes. was a religion. And I, I, again, arrogantly and ignorantly cherry-picked from each because I, I liked the, um, I think that notion of the sort of orphans of God, um, post-angel, pre-human, and kind of lost in the middle, yeah, uh, came from the earlier definition, but the um, but I know I use the phrase "children of fire" somewhere in Angus's yes. um, voiceover at the beginning, and and that came from the Islamic thing. So so that the sort of orphans of God and childrens of children of fire um, are actually not from the same mythological traditions. What one is pre-Islamic and one is well, not post-Islamic, obviously, is what? Islamic. But right. I just figured, oh, they jinn. It's got to be, got to be the same. They're the same Neither guy. Did influence and it the other good. orphans of God, children of fire. Yeah, that'll. Well, it's it's actually kind of interesting too, because like I, there's a couple things about jinn in the in folklore that really fascinated me. One, because they have free will, they not only have their own laws and societies, but they might belong to various religions. So hypothetically, you could have atheist or Buddhist jinn. Right. Which is right. Which is trippy to think about. And then uh, some Muslim scholars, they've actually influenced Western culture other than us picking up genie and running with it for hundreds sure. of years more than you'd think. Uh, because many Muslim scholars argue that the devil himself was a powerful and rebellious jinn. With a powerful and rebellious Not yeah. an angel. Yeah. And then well, a lot which, of is, which is the crossover with the Lucifer, the you know the fallen, fallen beloved yes. of God uh, in Christian mythology. Sure, right, exactly. And then also a lot of research holds that Faustian literature depicting warped bargains with devils that you would find right. in Faust or in a lot of subsequent work are likely influenced by stories of jinn, uh, which yes, totally <laughs> makes sense. Because that whole like wish granting aspect, the thing that always gets me about how uh, Western culture treats Satan or the devil is that, okay, so supposedly it's a fallen archangel, nothing more than that, which is powerful. Yes, but (laughs) people ascribe everything from like, oh, 
dinosaur bones were put in there by Satan to trick us and all these other things that involve like manifesting like warping reality. I'm like, wait, when does an angel have reality warping powers? Right. I think that's only on earth too, right? It was after the crisis on infinite earth. They changed costume around the same time. Yeah. It's really like the anti-monitor did some stuff. (laughs) (laughs) No, exactly. It's so, so fascinating to me that we don't know this influence pulls from all these other sources with how we think well, of it because and, and you're right because we literally don't know it's it like you know because often obviously cultural interactions um well i was going to say predate literacy which which is not necessarily technically true but but they predate common literacy um so we literally don't know um is is a deal with the devil tradition um it, it there can be arguments made that that's purely a western a judeo-christian purely western tradition um because we don't have the paperwork so to speak yeah um, that, right you know, that says well actually no deal with there was no deal with the devil story until after marco polo had been to the east you know or or whatever um right we don't know one way or the other but it's certainly well there are two interesting hypotheses, aren't there? One that it is human nature, the nature of the human imagination, to assume both the best and the worst of the beyond. It's like um, I maybe there's something that can give us what they want. Oh, then the other fucking shoe is going to drop, and it, it might just be human nature to assume that which would mean that these things would arise naturally within and independently within separate cultures or as you suggest um who knows how long ago uh these concepts crossed the waters it's um right and they become part of like folklore right and um and it's interesting that the the deal with the devil aspect, the you know, the wish that goes wrong, um, the, the Faustian bargain, in other words, um, is in, again, you know, I am very, very unqualified to speak for Islamic culture or even Zoroastrian culture. Likewise. It's an existing religion, let's be clear. Uh, it's a minority religion, obviously, these days, but it's there. So, um, so I, I can't speak with certainty to say that the whole three wishes and I'll fuck you up aspect is less important or or less numerically significant in the myths and fables of jinns in the East. But I believe it is. Um, It it really is a sort of, or at least let's say it's the Western appropriation of that that has chosen to focus on the three wishes and I'll fuck you up aspect. Right. Um, uh, I actually have a little bit of, uh, not on that specific aspect, but the, the sort of like literature transmission from of, of gin beliefs to like our Western uh-huh. conception. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, uh, like gin beliefs predate the the classic text One Thousand and One Nights. Sure. Um, by a lot, but that is the sort of text that that uh, has a lot of different stories of different aspects and different tales of jinn that 
had eventually made its way to the West and uh, started to influence our perception of the entities. Uh, right. Even before the initial translation. Um, was, was um, if you've done this research, the, the Richard, not that Richard Burton, folks, um, was the Richard Burton translation, was that the first Western translation or simply the, the biggest the biggest seller, you know, the, the most popular, or was that the, actually, really the first? I'm going to look that up real quick. Um, Wait, do I'm going to edit this? Oh, oh yeah, I do. I, yeah. Who's the guy who did Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam? That that's Fitzgerald, right? It, yeah, Richard Burton was the Thousand and One Nights. Yeah. It looks like the the very first translation of One Thousand and One Nights was the French translate in in the in Europe was the French translation by Antoine Galland in seventeen. Oh yeah, but that's French, man. Who reads French? Come on. Uh, I, I would imagine French people. French people. Uh, no. Yeah. Well, that yeah. Well, that says a lot, doesn't it? No, excuse me. It, so that was actually before seventeen seventeen, but it wasn't finished until seventeen seventeen. Okay. And. But it was around that time, and then the first English translation was in 1706 from an earlier version. Oh, okay. Of Galan's okay. text. Oh, so that is quite, well, that's, what's that, half a century before? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and then and then the, 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 the Galan version kept uh, uh, finishing the translation, because it's a very long text. It's, it's, it's got a ton of stories, obviously. Sure, um, sure. And then um, Lexi <laughs> thousand and one um lexographers debate whether the term jinn itself comes from the arabic word uh uh id jatnan to be hidden concealed is what it means or from the latin genus meaning spirit and um strong and cunning jinn. yeah which is the same root for genius ingenuity and yes. and uh yeah right, right exactly which which now has um it was translated into French and English as genie, either ending in an I or two eyes right. in the 18th century. And, but like Jin had been kind of loosely in middle age texts for a while as sometimes interpreted as devils. And then the story takes off, but that's probably more like a folkloric passing, you know, among like merchants and stuff of things they heard. Oh, but oh, that's it. So what was the first, have you got, have they noted the first use of the word in the West there? They got a date for that? I'm not sure. Uh, I need to do like a little bit deeper research for that. But I, I think, I don't know when the first use of gin is, but right. I would assume it would be in the 7th century. But in the West, it, it sort of got translated as a genie and that took off because earlier references to those stories would use devils, demons. That, that's what I was wondering because because obviously world trade had begun by the time Marlowe wrote Dr. Faustus. Yeah, right. Uh, so I'm just interested because th that's our, in the West, that's our classic, our first classic deal with the devil story. Absolutely. The first the eponymous Faustian bargain. So I'd be interested to know if, if the concept, if there's any way if, if we could know that the concept had crossed the waters before then. Huh. Yeah. And, uh, um, and I mean, the, we have to, right? Because ghouls came out of so, out of gin too. Because it, my understanding of gin from a lot of people, because um, I, I was able to talk to a few friends uh, from Palestine who grew up with stories of gin, awesome. that it was gins are almost it's like a, a blanket term for demons in general. So it's like 
a banshee could be a djinn, a goblin could be a djinn, and then ghouls themselves directly. Right, subcategories yeah. within. And 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 again, I might be mispronouncing this, but there's Ifrits <laughs> as well, which were... Yeah. I couldn't yes. tell if that was simply an alternate name or, or if there were uh, distinctions between... Yeah. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, Ifrits, I think, are... Um, I have to go up in my notes a bit, so I'm going to act like I just remembered this off the top of my so, head. It's always good when you can pull that off, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, uh, Ifrits, I think, are particularly a term for particularly powerful or or menacing djinn. Ah. Uh, yeah, because they can have a sort interesting of... to us Westerners because the second half of the word looks mm. like fright. And, and in fact, in certain... Irish and Scottish dialects, um, there's a past participle which is frit. Um, I, I, I was most frit when that when when that thing yeah. appeared, and I, I don't think there's um, an etymological connection at all. But it's but it's just it's visually and, and sonically interesting. If you hear it, you can kind of you can hear it, right? Like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, strong and particularly strong and cunning gin can be called afrits or afrit. A f r e e t is another spelling. Ah, that's awesome. Kind a- of like afraid. I don't know if it's related. Oh, Col- cultural osmosis yeah. is a fascinating thing. <laughs> it's uh, playing sure a game is. of telephone. You know what yeah. weird. And again, this is just testament to, to our, you know, to our usual Western ignorance. Um, there was a crew member on Wishmaster who was a Zoroastrian. And, Wonderful. And I managed to, um, oh, God, again, 30 years, I can't remember her name. Um, a younger lady crew member, she said, uh, oh, I'm Zoroastrian, by the way. and. And I managed not to say, you're kidding, right? That hasn't existed for a thousand years. Um, I just so said, cool. oh, really? That's Oh, I hope I haven't said it. And she was, she was extremely nice. But that was how ignorant I was, that I just assumed Zoroastrianism was like, I don't know, Mithraism or, um, or the Coptic gods of Egypt or something. Um, but no. It was, it's still... That's, like, exactly why the reason why, like, my stance on the show is to just be pro and, like, neutral on all these beliefs. Because it's so fascinating. Like, I don't know if jinn exist. I don't know. I know cultures, a bunch of people believe in them. And that's fascinating that's absolutely amazing. And I want to be as authentic and real and respectful and true as possible. Right. I do want to talk a little bit just before I move to the, the themes, um, there's a cinematic history of Jin, which is kind of interesting to me because so the as uh, the translations of A Thousand and One Nights got proliferated, sure. people became sort of like fascinated by these notions of genies and harems and wish granting and lamps and all this other stuff. Oh, the whole the whole Western obsession with Orientalism and Shinwazari oh, exactly. and stuff, sure. There's this Orientalist like fascination with right. like uh with genies and wish granting and riches and that kind of became in the popular imagination in the west how it translated into early film for for some time so there was this uh 1924 silent film called the thief of baghdad oh sure which, yeah which was Great remade movie. 
in uh, 1940. It is actually really good. I saw it in Turner Classic Movies the other day. It's yeah. really fun. Yeah, it's, and, it's Burbank Senior, right? It's uh, Yeah. And, and they had that lovely last title card, Happiness Must Be Earned, and then yeah. uh, they go off on the flying carpet. The, 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 the 1940 remake is also not bad. Um, it isn't, though. Like produced the, by Alexander Wood, and that doesn't that have the prototype for the Disney? Because is the genie blue skinned so. in that or I not? So. I can't. Remember. Um, I, I think it is. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so because it, it definitely influenced Disney's Aladdin, which was in the, in, um, in its era one of the sort of really popular conceptions of how we thought of genies in that that region of the world. Sure. And then another sort of influencing track was there was this 1900 novel called The Brass Bottle uh, and the silent films were released based off it in 1914, 1923. It was remade in 1963 and that version influenced the show I Dream of Jeannie. This is fascinating. I'd never heard of the book. And do the the early, do the silent movies exist? The 14 and 23? Are they... I tried to find uh, a copy. They're in the library. They're recognized in the library. Oh, so, of Congress. so they're not lost. You know, as we know, 80% well, I, of silent movies I'm are I'm 100% lost. not sure because there's records for them in the Library of Congress. But normally, with that sort of thing, you're able to find an online version because it's mm-hmm. public domain. Sure. I wasn't able to find one yet. So I don't know if there's fragments or if it's right, just encoded right. and it's lost. Sure. And that's the saddest sure. thing. Well, there's that whole weird thing as well where some, there are things, uh, have you heard of these things called paper prints? No. Do you know about this? I've heard the term before. This, I yeah, I knew nothing about it till, I, I, I don't know, six or seven years ago. Um, because of the vagaries of copyright law and because cinema was, was a new form, um, the only way, I, I, I might be, I'm certainly not making this up, but but I might be either misremembering or like I've rewritten it in my head, but I believe what the situation was. The only way films could be copyrighted in terms of existing law at that point was by literally printing a shot, printing wow. each frame. So they had, uh, and it was only there for archival and copyright law purposes, but you would have you know, literally tens of thousands of small black and white prints of every frame of the goddamn movie. Mm. Um, And they were called paper prints because restorationists and archivists found out decades later that movies that were otherwise lost, you know, no no negative or existing print found, could be reconstructed uh, from paper, like re-photographing the paper prints. Now, what's weird is, so as cool. I say that out loud, it sounds so unlikely that I'm assuming I just made that up. But uh, but I know I didn't. It's, I don't know. Um, it sounds it, true, it, actually. Like, it we'll true we'll all me. have to Google it afterwards. And either I had a very weird not. dream seven years ago or or that is – anyway – that's irrelevant to what you're saying, but I but I wonder if if nothing else, there might be a paper print of a 1940. I, I bet so, and it hasn't been reconstructed in a way that right, that right. we can just access. 
Um, but so it's interesting though, yeah, because like in both... 1963 and influenced. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. I had uh-huh. no idea. Is, is yep. it, is it cute and comic the way I dream of yes. Jimmy is? Or, it is. Oh, it is. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So like, and it's, it's funny because the sort of like comedic aspects of the brass bottle and I dream of genie kind of soften the role of the genie in Western popular culture. Sure. And then it, it kind of filtered from there, kind of borrowing from the, that tone and the thief of Baghdad into Aladdin in 92. Right. And so that became like, are running with like Aladdin, the magic lamp and the helpful genie that grants your wishes uh, became the Western conception of, uh, of in, in cinema, sure. The Westernization of gin. Right. And so that's one of the reasons why I find like Wishmaster, I don't think was the first, there had been a couple films that were, had lower profiles that had more menacing mm-hmm. gin. Not many. There was like one or two. Uh, yeah, I, I started out after, you know, I, I don't know if you guys know that the, there's a British horror novelist called Graham Masterson yes. who's it's, mm-hmm. I mean, sort of, I, I guess he's more Ramsey and Steve King's generation. I, I, again, if you're listening, Graham, don't mean to insult you. I, I think he's 10 ish years older than me, but um, he was a very popular and big selling author. Um, and I, we'd met once or twice. We, we, I, there's always that weird phrase, we weren't friends, which implies we did. I don't mean that at all. What I mean is we'd met and got on terrifically, but didn't know each other. But I only found out years later, he had written a horror novel called Gin. And um, cool. and I remember like a mutual friend saying, did Graham give you shit about ripping off his gin idea? And I thought, oh, Christ, <laughs> did I? And, uh, <laughs> and it... it there are no plot similarities whatsoever, but um, but yeah, I, I literally didn't know he'd written one. I can only think of I can only think of one instance of a bad genie film. It's called The Outing. It's not very good, and I only saw it this year. And it, it came out like the eighties. The, the Outing. The outing? Yeah, it's about a. And it, it, they, huh. they actually built like a twenty five foot mechanical genie. It's kind of awesome. It, the 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 movie wow. is great. fun in moments. It's not so great, but it's. It's the only other like evil genie, and as once again, I, I only saw it for the first time two or three months ago because I bought the. When, when was it? When was it made? Uh, early to mid eighties, I believe. Um, I bought it only because like the disc was going out of print, and I'm like, I want this, and uh, sure. And it, but it's yeah, because at that yeah, point, like as I said, I was I think I was thirteen, fourteen when Wishmaster came out, and this is what five, six years after uh, Disney's Aladdin. And if you were alive at that point and you were a child, blue genies were everywhere. Everything was blue genies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is, is that right? That, that's interesting. It's, it's, it's walking into Wishmaster. It was completely little edgelord 13-year-old me going, fuck childhood. I'm going to watch some, <laughs> some blood. And it, it, was, it was such a fun thing, especially at that age for me to go. Because Aladdin was a huge cultural touchstone in right. you know young young andrew's life and um and then wishmaster hits and i'm like yeah yeah i'm an adult now he's the bad yeah like it's it it was such a fascinating thing because i mean you know i i was an adult obviously when the disney movie came out and i saw it and liked it but but um but i was a kid when i dream of genie was on tv so 
like I had that touchstone for like not only a genie's friendly, but they're oh, kind of hot. It's a Barbie. Um, so it was ripped. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like genie just like in the lamp, so bored, just doing push-ups for a thousand years. <laughs> do you do you regret not throwing in like an I Dream of Genie joke into the movie? Looking back now. Well, I, I I didn't throw a joke in, but I did put direct <laughs> reference in the, uh, and that's what I was going to say about the the Aladdin thing. It it was so current um, that even though people don't necessarily make the association now, I actually do have the 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 folklore professor character Wendy Durleth, mm-hmm. um says to uh, By the way, I'm assuming this made the final cut. I, I think it did. She says to Alex, uh, mirroring the conversation Eric Salzgeber and I had had, she sort of says, Genie. And um, Alex says, what? Or And Dilla says, no, 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 no. Forget what our culture has made of the gin. Forget Barbara mm-hmm. Eden. Forget Robin Williams. It's still in there. Yeah, that's there. And, um, yeah, okay. Well, so... So it wasn't a joke per se, but I did, but I did nod at uh, at Babs and Robin. Yeah, um, and that cultural trajectory, yeah. if you will. Yeah, well, right, and, exactly. Yeah, exactly. and so, but the the interesting to me is like we had this like one track before, like Wishmaster made this other interpretation more common knowledge in the West, but then both of those interpretations have some relation to the wide range of gin attributes in the 100%. original folklore. Right. right you, exactly. You're right. Because the playful spirit aspect yes. is, is absolutely as present in it's, there. Like I, I, yeah, exactly. Like you would have gin that like had mm-hmm. human wives, you well, know, in the folklore. Right. Like, yeah, they're just finding out like how varied they are. And, and you don't think of a gin as, as necessarily like, they're not all going to be Wishmaster gins, you know, like I, part of me was always hoping that maybe right. with Wishmaster two, there'd be like another gin that would come through and be like, yo, Bob, get, come on, man. Chill. Yeah. Come yo, on. Yo, calm down, man. You, you make us look bad. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, yeah. like I, that could have been an interesting, you know, the yin and the yang of, and you have these two maybe similar looking creatures that are completely different personalities. Sure. And it's, sure. Oh, yeah, but, what what's interesting to me, and and maybe this is a great segue into like getting into the deeper dive thematic issues or, or, or aspects, is that um, uh, so we see this one particular gin, but it doesn't actually imply anything about the 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 personage of the other gin because so this one particularly militant one wants to unleash other gin. We don't really see them though. They could be a whole bunch of hippies, and you have this one like really. <laughs> Intense yeah. gin that's it's like, like he's the hole you need to get the world back in in your favor, but but you're sort of ashamed of him. It, it's like the way the British voted Winston Churchill out of office after World War II. It's like, yeah, this is the kind of dick we need to fight Hitler, but we don't want him around once once peace is back. Right, like we're done. We're done now. Yeah, like he's the he's the back hero in you cage. Need. Thanks, Winston. No. Right. Yeah. Right. He's like the what not he's not the hero you want, but the hero you deserve. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's sort of reluctant. Oh, I, I guess we need the asshole right now. Yeah. Get the job done. <laughs> like he's the Zod of Jin. Yeah. <laughs> what if he's just the Fredo? 
And like they're all like, "Oh, come on, man, you're really screwing this up." <laughs> like we we had like you're just we had a plan. Yeah, like, let's let's like, go on the yeah, boat. Exactly. It's all delusion. <laughs> it's like, like we had our Department of Human Relations we were forming. Right, <laughs> right. Come on, man. But are there sort of uh, for either of you? Are there any like themes in the that are kind of implicit or explicit in the the films or the folklore that? that you find particularly interesting or, or that speak to you in any particular way? Really the, the, the selfish, the selfishness of like human desire, like uh, how, <laughs> how incredibly petty we are. Like I think about the Buck Flowers thing, like that scene with Reggie Bannis, he wishes death on a person who has every right to tell him to like, get out of here, you weird, creepy, oh, dirty sure. you know? And it, it's mm-hmm. like, we don't think or, or really consider much past our own, like desire. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, particularly the death wish thing. I mean, the, the um, cause he's a homeless man who could have wished for a better life, but he instead wished death on this man. Right. Because, because we, we, we can't help but be in the moment. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah. If I was being rational, there are bigger things, but right now this guy's pissing me off. And, <laughs> Yeah, he could wish for anything. And this, look, I, this, here's here's an admission. One of the reasons that's in there is because I I, I hope other people are as awful as me about this. <laughs> but, um, I have found myself um, wishing for the death of people for much less than that. Now, <laughs> do, do I mean it? No, of course I don't. But for example, <laughs> this is terrible. If I'm running late for a meeting, I will find myself thinking how convenient it would be if the person who I was going to meet would just die because (laughs) then I wouldn't look bad. When I arrived at the office and said, hi, I'm here for my three o'clock, they'd say, oh, my God, Eric just died. And they wouldn't notice that I was an asshole who showed up 10 minutes late. Now, so that isn't really wishing death on anybody, but the pettiness, my instinct of let somebody else die so that I, I am not briefly embarrassed. Or mildly is, inconvenienced. Yeah, right, right. I think, but, that's, uh, I think that is a sad but constant human trait. We don't mean it. If, if, we are, if, we are, if it is put to us reasonably, we would say, yeah. oh, shit, no, 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 of course, please. I guess I'll live with the embarrassment. Don't kill the guy. But, but our instinct is, like, is very selfish. You know, we're all, we're all feral narcissists in our reptile brains. And fortunately for most, not all of us, but <laughs> most of us have these, you know, build up civilized frontal lobes wherever the wherever yeah. empathy is located in uh, in the brain we have that that's that makes us behave better and turns us into decent people but we have that thing of better your death than my mild inconvenience mm-hmm. this concludes part one of our two-part series on gin and the wishmaster films with a guest peter atkins Stay tuned for the second part, debuting next Monday. Once more, I'd like to extend a special thanks to our guests this episode, and to all of you out there listening. From the dawn of recorded human civilization, we've been fascinated by monsters and the monstrous. 
They've inhabited our dreams and nightmares. They've been our protectors and our villains. They've symbolized our fears and vices, our hopes and potential. Fears of creatures and the night that nourishes them were key inspirations and fuel for the rise of human civilization, the need to get out of the shadows, behind the walls, and into the light. In many ways, understanding our monsters is an important part of understanding our world and ourselves. So thank you for taking this journey with us, we humanoids from the deep dive.